Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So this week, our text uh, begins at the very end of, the, of chapter 7 of the book of John. Uh, you can tell there that it's a quick transition into chapter 8, and we will read the first 11 verses of chapter 8. This is John, the very end of chapter 7. It says, Then they all went home. Just a word of, of background here. Last week, we talked about Jesus in chapter 7 going down to Judea, to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. We also talked about how at the Feast of Tabernacles, there's all sorts of uh, symbolic goings on that would typically accompany this festival. People would be um, praising God and expressing their exuberant thanksgiving for the things that he has done coming off of the harvest season. The Festival of Tabernacles was a harvest festival. And there was also some, some known symbology that would take place, namely the priest would lead um, a group of people processing from the temple to the pool of Siloam where they would get water into these really fancy gold pitchers and bring them back into the temple and dump them out onto the altar, which sets the background for Jesus rising up on the last day, the greatest day of the festival, saying, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. There's all this water symbology that John doesn't really specify for us, but we know the background of this festival, and this is what Jesus is, is, is teaching in the midst of and asking people to come and to receive flowing water or living water that he would be able to provide for them. There's all sorts of really cool um, symbols that are in this text, but right in, embedded in between Jesus's teaching towards the end of chapter seven and Jesus's teaching in the middle of chapter eight, we have this story. It says, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now 
and leave your life of sin. The word of God for the people of God. Now, before we get into the discussion of this passage, which is well-known, some commentators would even argue that this might be the most well-known story of the New Testament altogether, at least one of the most often quoted, particularly by people outside of the church, this idea of let he who is without sin cast the first stone is, is traditional wisdom that is used in many different scenarios. But before we get into dissecting what the, the theological ramifications of this story is I thought that it would be important for us to spend some time thinking about the history of the Bible, specifically the history of the New Testament. Okay? Now, the New Testament, it has 27 books. Some of these books are focused on history. Some of them tell the story of Jesus, the four Gospels. Some of them, like Acts, retell the, the stories of the early church. We've got Paul's letters. We've got letters written by other folks in the early church. We've got um, this, this weird, prophetic, apocalyptic revelation in the final book of the New Testament. And these books were being written at a time and, and given out to, to folks in the early church and spread amongst people. Now, here's the real kicker. We don't have any of the original copies of the Bible. We don't have any texts that were written, say, by Paul in Paul's own penmanship. The only thing that we have are copies of copies. And at some point in the history of the church, it became important for people to figure out which were the earliest manuscripts or which were the manuscripts that we could find that would lead us to that original reading, what Paul really said, what the authors of the Gospels really wrote what James and uh, John, as he's writing Revelation, really wrote down. So people began to look for these manuscripts. Now, I don't know if on a Sunday evening with a lot of rain, if this is the best way of going into this, but it's important for us to talk about because I'm convinced that we need to know what the Bible is in order to deal well with how to interpret it. So stick with me for a handful of minutes before we get into the stuff that you can take to your work and take home, and hopefully that will change uh, challenge you and convict you before we get there. I'm going to say some stuff that won't have any meaningful ramifications in your life whatsoever, but it's going to be interesting. Can I hear an amen? amen. Okay, we'll see. All right, now, if we're thinking about manuscripts, look at this thing. It's three and a half inches by two and a half inches, and people were freaking out about it because this is the oldest known manuscript of the New Testament. And you all say, ooh, Ah, this is known as the Rylands Library Papyrus P52. And it has on one side, this is, this is like, you can see here that this is the front side and then this is the, the reverse side because back in the day you were able to write on both sides of, of certain texts. This is a papyrus. This is made out of a plant that was stitched together, chopped up into little segments and then stitched together. And we see here that in this papyrus we have pieces of the book of John written on these Fragments. This is dated to about 125 CE or AD, if that helps you a little bit. Most people would say that the book of John was written anywhere from 80, that's early, to maybe 100 CE or AD. So this is relatively close to the actual copy of the book of John. But this is all we have is this little fragmentary uh, words on a page, on a, on a piece of papyrus that only has maybe a handful of verses on it whatsoever. Now, we also have other papyri which have more text. We have the Chester Beatty P46. You can tell that anything that's papyrus has a P in front, and then they just numbered it. These are scholars. 
You know, they're not really like entertainers. They're not very creative. They're just numbering things and then putting a P to tell you this is made out of papyrus and this is what this text is. So in the Chester Beatty Library, you've got P, I believe 45, 46, maybe 47. And you can see that these are longer manuscripts of the New Testament. We've got some, some text here from the book of Corinthians that Paul is writing. And people think this is really important because the closer that these texts are to the original, ostensibly the closer that it would be to what Paul was actually saying. It's like if you're playing the game of telephone, this is a terrible example, but the person that, that I whisper the, the phrase to, if I'm whispering it to Michael and then Michael's whispering it to Susie, it's probably the case that they'll understand what I'm saying, but by the time it gets back to Roxanne, no chance whatsoever, right? Because all of you are going to add your own stuff and mishear things and introduce errors. So some people would say that the earlier a manuscript is, the better chance it has of being authentic or original. So these papyri are really important because these are some of the earliest witnesses that we have to the New Testament. Just pause for a moment. You haven't thought about this in a long time, have you? If ever. You take your NIV, or even, even worse, you just take out your smartphone, pull up your U version, and start reading, and have no real concept of what happened to get to this place. Am I right or am I right? You just read the words on the page and start going for it, and there's this, all this beautiful history behind it. So we have these papyri that are made out of certain... Um, types of material. They're written on papyrus. At some point, it switched and people began to write on different sorts of materials, namely parchment or vellum. These are animal skins. This is Codex Sinaiticus. This is also having to do with the time when Constantine was, was um, oh, what's the word here? making Christianity a big to-do and starting to order books for himself, for his libraries, and for other people as well. I've read something that one full copy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that this is right, one full copy of the Old Testament and New Testament would have gone for about 300,000 denarii, which is 300,000 days wages. That's really expensive. And again, we have our U version and we just pull it up. And I'm not saying that we take it for granted, but we kind of do. Uh, so here we have these beautiful uh, manuscripts of, of the New Testament. The Old Testament was also included in, in some of these texts as well. And you can see here, now you don't know Greek, but you know that all of these letters are just kind of mashed up together. There's no spaces between words. So some people would say that this might introduce some errors because sometimes there's words that could be divided in any number of places. Uh, but most of the people that were reading these texts at this time knew what was going on and knew how to deal with this. But you can see this is a really like fancy, handwritten uh, copy of the New Testament. I don't have anything to compare this to because now we barely use our hands to write anything at all. Maybe some of you in your line of work, but for the most part, we're all digitalized. I remember back in the day. Back in the day, when we used to get awards for certain disciplines at school, penmanship, champion. This was when we separated champions from non-champions. And back in the day, let me tell you, my penmanship was nice. 
I'm just, I'm trying, Taylor. I'm, I'm trying to keep you guys into this. But see, now people are, are writing these, these, um, these copies of the New Testament in, in these sorts of very flowery, very official, these are all capital letters. They're all crammed together. People are attempting to make sense of what's going on. And for the most part, they were able to do that. You can see here that Codex Sinaiticus was in the fourth century. We're now we're into like a, a couple hundred years, maybe 300 years removed from the actual penning of these books, and now we have these longer um, codexes. Codices, I believe, would be the actual plural of that. This is uh, Codex Sinaiticus as well, uh, a little bit different of a look from the other text. This is another Codex, Codex Alexandrinus. Uh, this is the beginning of Luke here in this passage, and you can see again, close up, um, the capital letters, they're all together, they're running together. There are spaces here in between sentences, but if this is one sentence here, all of the words are just crammed together and you're attempting to make sense of that. This was also because uh, paper or their forms of paper, it wasn't super cheap. So the more space you could conserve, the better it was. This is the fifth century document here. And then around the ninth century, people began to write differently. It wasn't just these big capital letters in very flowery official language. It was a more uh, of, a, of a handwritten cursive. It's called minuscule. And these minuscule documents are similar to what you might think of um, a Greek text should look like. There's some spaces involved, and it's this flowing script, and it's beginning to look more like Greek Today, as it's printed, this is the ending of the book of Romans, and this is a ninth century document. Again, 800 or so years passed when these things were actually first put in print. These are copies of copies of copies of copies. Now, if we're looking at all of this, scholars have, have found that there's about 5,000 Greek manuscripts, whether it's papyri or whether it's the all capitals, which are called uncules or the minuscules. We have three, these three different versions, and there's about 5,000. It's actually closer to 6,000 Greek manuscripts that have led to, um, to what we have on our version apps. Okay, uh, Some people like to compare the Bible to other works of ancient history, and you can see here that the Bible just smokes every other ancient historical document in terms of how well it's attested. 5,700, you could even say 5,800 manuscripts here compared to 27 for Livy, 3 for Tacitus, 24 um, Thucydides, thank you, Herodotus, 75 manuscripts there. So the, the New Testament is something that's completely different because we have so many documents. Really cool, right? Now, there is a little bit of a problem with this. I'm actually going to skip these because you guys don't care. There's a problem with 5,800 Greek manuscripts. They don't all say the same thing. It introduces these things called variants, where one manuscript might say this word, and a different manuscript would say a different word, and the, the Greek nerds that are attempting to make sense of what the Bible is actually saying, they compare these two things, weigh which one is more correct, and then make a logical deduction of what is probably the original text that Paul or John or whoever else was writing. It introduces an exciting vocation for you guys. If you're still looking for a career, perhaps you want to be a New Testament textual critic. Perhaps you'd like to learn ancient Greek and figure out and weigh these variants to see what's what here. And people are beginning to 
to weigh the different texts and see which ones are probably the most, uh, the earliest, the, the most original, the most authentic. And they're looking at thousands of texts and comparing them. When I say 5,800 texts, also, just side note, and then we'll, we'll move away from nerd stuff, that's only the actual copies of the text. It's not including early versions, like the versions that were in Latin or other languages. It's also not including the use of the New Testament quoted in the early church fathers, which some would say that there's, um, I believe I saw a million citations of the New Testament in these early church fathers and their writing. There's a lot of witnesses to the Bible. And here's the point. The story that we looked at and that we read, that you guys know, that you've heard, that you've seen implemented in conversations, probably the most uh, eminent New Testament textual critic of our time. He actually passed away a few years ago. His name is Bruce Metzger. He taught at Princeton. He says that this story is lacking in the best Greek manuscripts, the earliest, the ones that we know are probably closest to the originals. This story does not appear. He says even more significant is the fact that no Greek church father, the early church fathers that were commenting on the Bible, they were not including this story. Another scholar says, where the passage does appear in ancient manuscripts, it's often marked with asterisks or other notations indicating that the copyists who included the account knew of its problematic textual status. In other words, the story that you know well probably was not written by John nor was it included in the earliest accounts of his gospel. In fact, I believe this is the introduction in the New International Version. It says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this story. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part in different places, namely because where this story lands, it doesn't make sense that it would be in this place because it's really breaking up the flow of Jesus' sermon. Remember how I said the priests, they were processing to the temple and they were getting the pitchers of water and they were coming to the altar and they were dumping it on the altar. And then Jesus says, in the midst of this water drawing procession, he says, I am the living water. If you're thirsty, come to me. And in the background, the priests are doing this, this whole procession. In the same way, there was also... A, a ritual of light. People would light candles and they would have actually these big candles in the temple courts. And it's in uh, 8, 12 or close to there. Then when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's still playing off all of the symbology that's happening at the festival of tabernacles. It's not just the water that's being poured out on the altar. And Jesus says, I'm the water. It's also the candles that were being lighted. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And crammed in between these two stories, we have this really weird account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. So most Bibles will let you know that this is probably not 
in the earliest versions of the Bible, and John probably did not write it. We also can affirm this through vocabulary. There's all sorts of words in this section that are not in anywhere else in the Gospel of John, which leads most people to think that John did not write it. It's something completely different. It's something completely foreign, but it has been placed in this specific spot for a specific purpose, but John did not write it. Again, Marianne May Thompson says, it is not a part of the Gospel of John as it first circulates, but was introduced into it at some later point. Now we can sit there for a second, because I don't know if that sort of information messes with your understanding of what the Bible is, or if we've gotten to a place where that kind of stuff doesn't even matter. We do have our English Bibles that are saying, like, put a flag up because this might not be something that's, that's original, but the story itself, it seems to have these resonances with stuff that Jesus would usually do. Jesus would usually be merciful to sinners. Jesus would usually be placed in this, this sparring match with the religious authorities. Jesus would often have these moments where he is uh, trying to figure out what to do when faced with a ridiculous proposition that's, that's virtually unanswerable. So most scholars would say that perhaps this is pieces of oral tradition. So even if John didn't write it, it's worth our consideration to figure out what this text is teaching us and telling us, which is where I'd like to spend the majority of our time here. Now let's do a little bit of audience participation here. I'm going to read this text, and then I'd like for you to tell me what you think is weird about it, okay? There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer, okay? Um, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? What is odd about this, this circumstance? Yes. Marnie, the good feminist, stands up and hits a home run saying, what's up with the guy? Right? Because if you look at the Old Testament text, it would say things like, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, perhaps, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That's Leviticus chapter 20. Also in Deuteronomy 22, we have similar language here. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So you have these texts that seem to indicate that it's not just the woman that should be on the hook, but it's the woman and her sexual partner that are both on the hook, but the Pharisees do not bring the man, they just bring the woman. Anything else strike you as strange about this passage? I know it's church, but you can say it out loud. How, Arthur says... How did they catch her? What's happening? You got the Pharisees like kind of circling the, the first century domicile and they're just kind of peeking in saying, I think we got her. I think it's happening. I think, no, go, go, go. Like how does, this, how does this state of affairs take place where the Pharisees and the scribes are catching someone in the act of adultery? What does that mean? 
At what stage in the game do they show up here? What, what's going on? There's a lot of questions that, that are being brought to the, to the fore here. How are they catching this person? Where is the man? And also, really, this, this text has more to do with comparing Jesus to Moses, which is usually what the religious leaders are all about. They were using this question, it says, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They were trying to set him up, and they thought that they would do that because as she shows up and as she is brought here, they were banking on the fact that Jesus would forgive her and in so doing, make light of the law because the law says when you catch somebody, kill them. It's a, it's a ridiculously tough teaching, but they wanted Jesus to have to make a decision so that they could trap him. And there were no easy answers here. They're saying, Moses says this. What do you say with the implication? If you say something different than Moses, then who are you? We've got to get rid of you. There's no right answer here in the way that they're framing this question, at least in their mind. I was listening to an interview earlier today, actually, uh, with a controversial pastor named Rob Bell. He wrote a book uh, a long time ago, actually, it was like 2008, 2009, called Love Wins, and it's, it's, uh, the subtitle is The Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived, and basically whether or not they're going to heaven or hell, that sort of thing. And he goes on this book tour, and he's doing these interview spots, and people are asking him questions, and he's recounting this moment where he's talking to a commentator on MSNBC, and the first question that's asked, he describes it as a question that's kind of like, do you walk to school or do you take your lunch? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And he was like, I was just like deer in headlights. I had no idea what to say because there's no, there's no right answer here. And this is what the Pharisees are attempting to do to Jesus. They're presenting him with a question that's unanswerable in their mind. Jesus, if you go the route of mercy and forgiveness, then you're going against Moses, and if you go the route of let's kill her, then you're actually going to be treasonous in the eyes of the Roman officials because we're not able to make these sorts of uh, decisions without Rome being involved. N.T. Wright says, already we sense the temperature of the situation rising, and with it, Jesus' anger. They are using the woman, however guilty she might be of a serious sin, simply as a tool in their attack on him. All throughout the literature, she's talked about as a pawn, because she hasn't said anything yet. She's just here in the story, and nobody's even saying a word to her. She's just paraded about, made to stand in the midst of the people to which the Pharisees step back, use her as the example to say, what are you going to do about this one, Jesus? In so doing, N.T. Wright says, they are enjoying, the Pharisees that is, they're enjoying their sense of moral superiority over the woman, as well as their sense of having put Jesus in a corner that he can't easily escape from. Imagine the Pharisees parading this woman, however they found her, Arthur, I'm not sure, but they bring her into this place. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The guy, who cares? Deal with it, Jesus. And they're all high-fiving each other, backing up like, what? Nice. If this was a moment for social media, perhaps somebody is live streaming this on, on one of the ridiculous social media apps that we're all so dependent upon for our self-worth and things like that. And, Jesus, and the Pharisees would be like, what? This is good. But the video is about to become viral because Jesus does something completely contradictory to what they're thinking here. And N.T. Wright is really focusing on the anger of Jesus because in this moment, when confronted with this non-winnable situation, he bends down 
and begins writing in the dirt. And I don't care what people have told you, they've got no freaking clue what Jesus is doing in this moment. There's lots of different ideas. Some of them are completely ridiculous. He's bending down because he's distraught. He's bending down to doodle in the dirt. He's bending down to draw some pictures, maybe a cartoon strip. Maybe he's just like, back in the day when I was in elementary school, you would just do that thing that looked like an S. You remember? Maybe he's just doing one of those and passing it around to say, look, look at this, Peter. That's cool, right? No, nobody knows. Some people say that he's acting out Jeremiah 17, 13, which is actually pretty cool. I want to read this to you because it makes for an interesting tie specifically with how this text is connected to um, the passage before when Jesus, remember, you got the priest, they're dumping out the water on the altar. And Jesus says, I'm the living water. I can give you what you need. And Jeremiah 17, 13 says this, it says, and I quote, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Catch it. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. But wait, it gets better. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Okay. That's cool. I don't know. Like, it says nothing about what Jesus is doing. He stoops down. He's writing in the dirt. Now people are pulling this passage from Jeremiah 17 saying, maybe he's writing their names in the dirt because they have forsaken him and they're not going to get living water, which he's just offered in the previous passage. And Jesus is ticked. Some would say that he's writing out parts of the Decalogue. The Decalogue is the fancy way of saying the Ten Commandments. Because if Jesus is, is approached with this woman who's caught in adultery, perhaps he's bending down and he's beginning to write out some commandments that his interlocutors have broken as well. As you see, this is how the story, this is where the story goes. Or uh, some ancient versions of the Bible, remember those, those um, variants that I told you about, some people would add to the story where Jesus bends down and he writes the sins of the people that are in front of him in the dirt. Now imagine you approach Jesus and you try to trap him and then he peers into your soul and he writes something that you can see in the dirt just so you know it ain't going to be good for you. Right? And this is speculative. People don't know. And then there's, uh, I believe, one more where he's writing an acquittal. In the Roman legal system, you would write out acquittals for people. And some folks have said, listen, he's going to let this woman off the hook. Perhaps he's writing her own acquittal. We don't know. Now, one scholar does kind of put us in the ballpark that I think is, is at least workable. She says the story, it gives us no information about the content of what Jesus writes because it is the act of writing itself that's important. Now, this is good because left to our own devices, I don't think John is just saying, put in whatever you want or whatever you think might work or make some weird tie to Jeremiah 17 that has a lot of the same words in the text. She goes on to say, interpretations that attempt to supply the content of what Jesus writes, it misses the significance of Jesus' nonverbal response. In the Mediterranean world, she says, and now she's beginning to speculate, such an act of writing would have been recognized as an act of refusal and disengagement. Teachers, you know what this is like. You're attempting to get the, the attention of your students, and they're like, 
nope, I'm just going to doodle here. I'm just going to write some bull in the pages and I'm not going to listen to you. And she's saying that maybe this is Jesus' stall tactic, and it has some credence because the next clause, it says, when they kept on questioning him. Remember, the Pharisees, they show up, they prayed this woman, they back up, and they're like high-fiving each other, and then Jesus does nothing. And they're like, what's he doing? What's he do? Keep, try it again, try it again. What, Jesus, in the law, Moses, you know? Moses says, we should kill this woman. What do you say? Doodle, doodle, doodle. What gives? And they keep approaching Jesus, getting him to figure out what he's going to do, and then he straightens up. The Greek actually says that he bends down, and then he stands up. And he comes out with this thing, that if, if the question is, do you walk to school or do you take your lunch, Jesus actually answers this in a way that completely confounds the person who's asking the question. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at this woman. And then he gets back down on his knee and goes back to what he was writing in the dirt. Mike, drop Jesus. This is classic. He stands up to give the answer that nobody's ready for. He's peeved beyond belief at the gall of these people to parade this pawn in front of them. And then he says, you have no sin, you throw the stone. I got some stuff I got to figure out down here on the dirt. We don't know what he's doing, but it at least is moving in this direction. And the Pharisees at this moment, they pull off the Charlie Brown shuffle. They start putting down their rocks and they just start walking away. And if Charlie Brown doesn't mean anything to you, maybe you've seen those clips from Arrested Development. There might be one in the room, you know, George Michael walks away and, and they cue the Charlie Brown music. Like they're, they're, they're depressed. And I, I had to Google image search this by typing in depressed Charlie Brown walk. So you can tell like, this isn't Charles Schultz. This is, some, this is some knockoff Charlie Brown art here, as you know, but it at least communicates the point to you. The Pharisees, it's like they thought they had him. And Jesus said, if you haven't sinned, then you cast the first stone. And they're like, oh, shh, beep drop the stone, walk away. Because they don't know how to handle what Jesus is saying in the moment. And when all of these people have left, Jesus is still at it. He's still writing in the dirt. Whatever he's writing, man, that'd be a fun question for us to pursue. But we don't know. But once everybody around has gone, and we don't know how many people were there, it says it begins with the elders, the ones who were like supposed to know what's going on. They leave first, and Jesus, when everyone's gone, and the woman's still just standing there, he speaks to her for the first time in the story, and he says, where are they? The people, the people that were just here that, that wanted you dead, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Come on, Jesus. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because he's just sitting there. It's not like he's putting on his headphones and becoming dull to the world. Like he's watching all of this unfold. And at the end, he says, where's your accusers? Where are the people that want you dead? Have they all left? And once she hears these questions, has no one condemned you? She says, no one. No one has condemned me. It's really bad interpretation to psychologize the text. But this woman that has been paraded in front of Jesus, that's had her life dangled in front of her, because according to Jewish law, she was on the hook for these things. 
We don't get any sort of her inner turmoil or psyche, but we do hear her in this moment say, no one is here anymore. You can imagine the shame. You can imagine the relief. You can imagine the hope. You can imagine like maybe this is, this is new life for me. Like when you get down to the bottom and you begin to climb back up, perhaps this is this woman's bottom moment. And when she's had the law dangled in front of her and her very life dangled in front of her and Jesus, who's been played in the dirt, says, there's no one here. And then he comes back with this line where he says, I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the second time in John's gospel that Jesus has said, go now and leave your life of sin. He also said this to the man, uh, the, the paralytic in, in John chapter 5 that was waiting for the waters to stir when, when he's healed and he comes back to see Jesus. Jesus says, don't, don't sin anymore or else it'll get worse for you. Really strange clause there, but the same, the same um, verbiage here of go now and leave your life of sin is part of Jesus's... Um, Repertoire of things that he's saying to people. And this is what he's saying to the woman who's caught in adultery. Now, I wanted to include this just because I don't know what to do with it. And this is terrible preaching. If I had a second service, I would nix the first 11 minutes and I would probably nix this slide because it's difficult. But I found it to be so intriguing and so um, interesting that I wanted to include it for you, just for you to think about. Marianne May Thompson says that Jesus does not endorse the woman's punishment clearly, but in a footnote, she also says he does not explicitly forgive her sin. Indeed, nowhere in John does Jesus explicitly forgive sinners. Wrestle with that, because this is the image of Jesus that we know, but in this moment where he has an opportunity with the woman to restore her, he says, I'm not going to condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. There is no explicit offerance of forgiveness. It's all implied. I don't know what to do with that. And I didn't have a, a lot of time to, to think about it, but I didn't want to not include it because I think it's worth us pursuing. Now, as we come to the end of our reading here, most scholars would say, most sermons that are preached on this, it, it just, it falls into the world of moralism. It falls into the world of like, are you self-righteous like the Pharisees who show up and say, I'm perfect, I can call out this person, or begin to, to cast judgment upon the person over here that you know is low down dirty. Perhaps even you're sitting out of the room, metaphorically speaking, to catch the person in their adultery, whatever that might be, so that you can parade them before whoever represents this larger panel of authoritative people to say, look at them, do something about that. Thank God I'm not as bad as they are. We also have heard this passage talked about from the vantage point of the woman and how she's so fill in the blank here. Anytime we're, we're involving sexual sin in our reading of the Bible and anytime we're attempting to apply it to our lives, whatever that looks like, then we begin to, to either pick up the stones in our mind to throw them at this sexual deviant over here or on the flip side, we embody the woman who has been called out and we are just couched in shame and guilt 
and fear that if anyone ever found out about us then, what would happen? And we bring these, to, these, these, these ideas to the text where it's not necessarily uh, what the text is really about, but we're dealing with moralism. How, how can we avoid being like the Pharisees? How can we avoid being the ones that have these stones ready to throw them at somebody? And I would challenge you just, just in, in this world of thinking, and I don't know if this is something that is just me that deals with this, but when you find yourself on social media and you see a post that really bothers you, or you hear an idea that seems to grate against you, is it not, is it not the, the likelihood that we pick up our stones ready to chuck them at somebody because we're so self-righteous and we know better than they do about any number of things? How different are we than the Pharisees? I think there's points of application that we can make here with regard to um, these moralistic teachings, but really, I think what this passage it might be about is a bit more focused. It's not just about the moralism of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the sexuality of, of the woman and how to address those things, but really, I think there's something more embedded within the politics of the moment. Jesus is so ticked because of what the religious authorities have done by bringing this woman here to condemn her. He's not, in this story, mad at her sin so much as he is mad at the ones who are parading it around for their own gain. Again, Gail uh, R. O'Day says, this story is about neither the scribes and Pharisees' sin of self-righteousness nor the woman's sexual sin, at least not just that. I think there's things that we can glean from it, but rather it is about the challenge to embedded religious authority that Jesus brings and the possibilities of new life that arise from that challenge. This is where I would like us to think for 30 to 45 seconds. In our lives as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity either to parade someone around waiting for judgment or to offer them, like Jesus has, the possibility of new life, the possibility of forgiveness and inclusion, the possibility of bringing one who has been ostracized or who will be ostracized back into community. We have the opportunity not just to think about our own moralism, but to go one step beyond and poke at the power structures that are using texts like this, perhaps, to diminish or subjugate certain people under their tyrannical rule. We have the opportunity to speak life and hope to folks in the midst of their brokenness and shame. I don't think that this is just unique to me as a pastor. But when I sit across the table from someone who says to me, I've never heard a pastor say that God loves me before, then something completely jacked up has happened with the religious authorities that have lorded that over their lives. And you guys have the opportunity to bring people back, to extend the arms of Christ and to welcome them in, in very similar ways, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and, and be brought back into community. 
I would also encourage you, last thought here, a lot of times that go and sin no more is just waiting. It's on the tip of our tongues. We can't wait to say it because we can't leave a, a, a situation without at least identifying the fact that these people are awful sinners and we have to tell them that. We have to enforce that because Jesus would want us to. I would encourage you to take a step back. Maybe our conversations could focus on the former. Neither do I condemn you. Neither does Jesus condemn you. Jesus offers you new life and hope. And while we might be tempted to pick up those rocks to end the life of the person in front of us, perhaps we should slow and we should allow Jesus to be the one who judges and not ourselves. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.